0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. We're continuing on in the series Diversity in Early Christianity. In the last episode, we began to delve into the opponents of Ignatius of Antioch in the early 2nd century as an instance of the type of Jesus groups that existed and the types of struggles that were going on among different followers of Jesus. In this episode, we continue on to the second main type of opponents that are evident in Ignatius' letters, namely the Judaizing opponents, as he would call them. In other words, followers of Jesus, it turns out they're Gentiles, by the way, who were advocating that you needed to follow Judean practices in a specific way, in a way that Ignatius found was unacceptable. So we delve into these opponents, but then we move on to the whole question of how does Ignatius approach combating the opponents? What strategies does an author like Ignatius use in trying to counter other followers of Jesus who have different opinions and different practices than he does? I'll outline a three-fold strategy, you could say, that you can find in Ignatius' letters. A three-fold strategy that includes things like advocating a particular leadership structure, advocating very clear statements of belief that exclude and marginalize other followers of Jesus who have different views than yourself, and finally advocating that there be united meetings under the leadership of just one leader, under the bishop. So we get into various issues regarding how Ignatius combats the opponents in Asia Minor when he writes his letters. I hope you enjoy this episode, and please feel free to read more about Ignatius and other early Christian authors on my website, philipharland.com. Let's move on to the other main opponents what I'm calling here, the Judaizing opponents. And there's a bit of value judgment loaded in it, but we're not using it in the value judgment loaded way. Judaizers, in the way I'm talking about as a scholar here, are people who practice Judaism to a degree that is objectionable to Ignatius. That's all I mean by Judaizers. He's calling them Judaizers. We don't have a term to describe them, so as scholars, it's convenient to call them Judaizers here, remembering that It's only in the perspective of Ignatius that they're too Jewish. Although there's some crossover. In other words, sometimes in one letter he addresses both issues. But most of the time, the bulk of the material on one issue, on the Docetists, is in one letter. And the bulk of the material on the Judaizers is in another letter. Which suggests two different opponents as opposed to one. In other words, that it's not people practicing Judaism who are also saying Jesus was never truly flesh. I'm arguing it's two opponents. And let's take a look at the evidence for these, what we're calling Judaizing opponents. And we'll soon see it seems like they're Gentiles, that the opponents who are Judaizing are Gentiles. Chapters 8 to 10 of the Magnesians. So he's writing to Magnesia, again, a city right near all these ones in the central, uh, sort of in the middle of Turkey on the western coast. Again, he's addressing followers of Jesus who he feels are on his side. He may be trying to convince some to come onto his side. And this is what he says in chapters 8 and 9. Do not be deceived by strange doctrines. So once again, he's setting it up that he's talking about followers of Jesus who have something he calls strange views. He might use the word heresy. In fact, one of the earliest occurrences of the Greek word hierasis in early Christian literature occurs in Ignatius's letters. It doesn't have value judgment in it until the Christians get a hold of it. But once some Christian authors get a hold of it and start using it in particular ways, it becomes bad choice, heresy, bad choice. But he's now again talking about what he would call a heresy, a bad choice, a group that is wrong. Do not be deceived by strange doctrines or antiquated myths, since they are worthless. For if we continue to live in accordance with Judean practices, we admit that we have not received grace. For the most godly prophets lived in accordance with Christ Jesus. He's talking about Judean practices and contrasting it to living in accordance to Christ. Further on, chapter 9. If then those who had lived in antiquated practices, that's his ongoing language of it, is old-fashioned, antiquated, outdated practices. If those who had lived in antiquated practices came to newness of hope, no longer keeping the Sabbath, but living in accordance with the Lord's Day, the first occurrence of any evidence of Christians' meeting on Sunday, 110 CE, on which our life also arose through him and his death, which some deny, little knock at the docetists, even though the Judaizers are in the mind, the mystery through which we came to believe and because of which we patiently endure in order that we might be found to be disciples of Jesus Christ, our only teacher, how can we possibly live without him, whom even the prophets who were his disciples in the spirit were expecting as their teacher? So whole, the whole scenario that Ignatius has here, the whole picture he has, is of opponents who follow antiquated practices, who follow Judaism, and he's suggesting that even the prophets in the Hebrew Bible followed Christ. We don't have time today to deal with the whole issue of supersessionism, namely that within some early Christian writings, especially in the late 1st century and into the 2nd century and more so in later years, there began to be this idea that Christianity replaced Judaism and that Judaism was somehow obsolete in some way. And in a way, Ignatius begins to reflect sentiments similar to this uh, whole notion that develops more fully in later times. We're also seeing more evidence of what we discussed before, and namely the parting of the ways. We're seeing an author who represents a more stark line between following Jesus and being Judean. Chapter 10 underlines that further. Therefore, let us not be unaware of his goodness, for if he were to imitate the way we act, we are lost. Therefore, having become Jesus' disciples, let us learn to live in accordance with Christianity. One of the first occurrences of the word Christianity. Ignatius is fascinating for a variety of vocabulary issues. The first occurrence of heresy, the first occurrence of Catholic, worldwide it just means in reference to Christians, The first occurrence of Christianity in contrast to something else he's calling Judean ways of doing things. Judaizing. Look a little bit further down in chapter 10. It is utterly absurd to profess Jesus Christ and to practice Judaism. Something that the Gospel of Matthew would totally disagree with. For Christianity did not believe in Judaism, but Judaism in Christianity, in which every tongue believed and was brought together to God. The idea that Christianity, well, actually not even supersessionism, but saying Christianity came first and Judaism came later. And Christianity is true. Judaism is not. Now, what he means by Judaism is hard to figure out. But what is clear is the people he's objecting to are practicing Judean practices in some way. There are indications elsewhere in Ignatius' letters that it has something to do with using the Hebrew Bible and interpreting it in particular ways because he objects to their interpretation of the scriptures. So that's the key passage in a way, chapter 10, this whole idea. It is utterly absurd to profess Jesus Christ and to practice Judaism. That's Ignatius' type of Christianity, but it's not the Mathian community's type of Christianity, and it's not the type of Christianity practiced by his opponents here, who he feels are going by antiquated practices and are Judaizing too much. Let's look at one other passage that underlines this. In his letter to the Philadelphians, Philadelphia is further inland and to the north in Turkey. And in his letter to the Philadelphians, chapter 6, we get further suggestions about what some other followers of Jesus are doing in these communities, namely that they're still practicing Judaism to some degree. Understandably, it's a Judean movement. The thing to notice here is how Ignatius obviously thinks that they're doing too much Judean things. He himself is doing Judean things. He's using scripture, he's talking about the prophets, but he feels that other people are going too far in following Judaism. This is the one that underlines that they are Gentiles who are doing this. The, the opponents are Gentiles who are practicing Judaism. But if anyone expounds Judaism to you, do not listen to him. For it is better to hear about Christianity from a man who is circumcised than about Judaism from one who is not. It's better to hear about Christianity from a circumcised Judean than it is to hear about Judaism from a Gentile. The opponents are Gentiles, Gentiles who believe that to follow Jesus, you need to practice Judean practices, most likely including food laws. But we're not sure. Circumcision, probably. So we're seeing something similar, though not the same. And definitely Ignatius is not the same in his opinion as Paul, but similar to what we saw in Galatia in terms of certain followers of Jesus still feeling that Gentiles need to follow the Judean law, need to follow the Torah. And here again, 50 years later, in some cities of Asia Minor, having other Christians continuing to do the same. But if either of them fail to speak about Jesus Christ, I look on them as tombstones and graves of the dead, upon which only the names of men are inscribed. Look further down, chapter 8. This is the key, one about some other issues to do with interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, most likely. Verse 2 of chapter 8. Moreover, I urge you to do nothing in a spirit of contentiousness, but in accordance with the teaching of Christ. For I heard some people say, if I do not find it in the archives, I do not believe it in the gospel. If I do not find it in the archives, it's likely referring to scriptures, in the ancient writings, is what, another way of putting it. I do not believe it in the gospel. This is what his opponents say. If I do not find it in the Hebrew Bible, it's not part of my gospel of Jesus. They're very focused on the Torah. They're very focused on the Hebrew Bible and on the prophets and have a different interpretation of the Hebrew Bible and prophets than Ignatius has. Ignatius isn't saying, let's throw out the Hebrew Bible. He's not Marcion. He also uses the Hebrew Bible, Ignatius. They have differences of opinion on how to interpret it and differences of opinion on what practices advocated within the Hebrew Bible apply to Gentiles. If I do not find it in the archives, I do not believe it in the gospel, is what his opponents say. And when I said to them, it is written, they answered me, that is precisely the question. But for me, the archives are Jesus Christ. The inviolable archives are his cross and death, and his resurrection and the faith which comes through him. By these things I want, through your prayers, to be justified. It was a debate he had with these opponents over how to interpret the Hebrew Bible and about how Jesus enters into the picture of how to interpret the Hebrew Bible. Beyond that, we don't really know the details. But it seems like they likely were Gentiles who were circumcised and who were focused on observing Jewish practices as part of belonging to a Jewish movement. Ignatius, thinking differently. Something I indicated to you that in both cases, both of those opponents' cases, there are indications of various places in uh, Ignatius' letters that separate meetings are taking place, namely that the opponents who are followers of Jesus have their own meetings separate from the people that Ignatius is writing to. Ignatius is trying to keep them on his side, so to speak, or trying to get them on his side and trying to warn them of these other followers of Jesus in the same cities where they live. Let's get into some of what Ignatius' strategies are in trying to combat these opposing viewpoints within certain Jesus groups in Asia Minor and briefly outline what I would call a threefold strategy here. There are three things that you come across in Ignatius' letters in relation to these opponents that underline how he's attacking them and how he's trying to counter his opponents, how he's trying to win people over to his view of things. First of all, Ignatius again and again and again comes back to leadership structures. This is, in part, a response to what he sees as divisions and the threat of these other Jesus groups and the possibility that more Jesus groups will start, that you'll have more schisms and more divisions and more separate groups of Jesus followers. He advocates a particular leadership structure that he feels will counter the opponents and will help to secure the unity of the groups of Jesus followers who think the right way, as he would put it. So over and over again, you may have noticed this, he's back to this again and again. Now the structure he advocates, leadership structure, ends up becoming the dominant leadership structure in Christianity. Don't be fooled though, because when you're reading Ignatius, he's not talking about standards here, he's trying to set standards. (laughs) There were no standards yet. He's advocating a particular understanding of leadership structure. And the degree to which he beats people over the head with it suggests a good number of the people he's writing to probably do not have this leadership structure as their model. What is this leadership structure? Well, let's look at one example of it. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. He's always talking about unity and harmony, and he sees this as united under this leadership structure he's advocating, and that this is a way to counter opponents and counter division. Thus it is proper for you to act together in harmony with the mind of the overseer, the bishop, As you are in fact doing. For your presbytery, your elders, which is most worthy of its name and worthy of God, is attuned to the bishop as strings to a lyre. Therefore, in your unanimity and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung. Using the analogy of a choir singing. You must join this chorus, every one of you, so that by being harmonious in unanimity and taking your pitch from God, you may sing in unison with one voice through Jesus Christ to the Father in order that he may both hear you and, on the basis of what you do well, acknowledge that you are members of his Son. It is therefore advantageous for you to be in perfect unity in order that you may always have share in God. Here and elsewhere, Ignatius advocates a monarchy as the structure for leadership in the church. A monarchy where it's the bishop, it's just the Greek word overseer, so the structure is bishop at the top, one only. Elders or presbytery below the bishop, and deacons or servants below the elders. Everyone is answerable to the bishop. He's the monarch of the church in this model of leadership. And again, it's an attempt of Ignatius to establish this fully, this monarchy model as the way in which things should be done. He imagines that as a way of ensuring unity and that everyone has to answer to one guy, the bishop. Let's look at Trallians uh, chapter 2 just as another example of this. For when you are subject to the bishop as to Christ Jesus... It is evident to me that you are living not in accordance with human standards, but in accordance with Jesus Christ, who died for us in order that by believing in his death you might escape death. He parallels the position of the bishop with the position of Christ. Very high position. It is essential, therefore, that you continue your current practice, in this case he's talking as though they do this, at trellis at least, and do nothing without the bishop but be subject also to the presbytery as to the apostles of Jesus Christ, our hope. Furthermore, it is necessary that those who are deacons of the mysteries of Jesus Christ please everyone in every respect. Let's get on to the second main strategy that Ignatius uses to counter these opponents. The second main strategy is to define proper belief. And there is a sense in which Ignatius is very important as an early example of what you could call proto-creeds. Proto just means they're not really creeds, but they're heading that direction. Remember that later on in the 4th century, it becomes common for Christian community to have the bishops meet together and decide what is our belief. And then it becomes the apostolic creed. You still hear them in Catholic churches and Anglican churches today, as an example. In the 4th century, some philosophical upper-class bishops get together and figure out, okay, we've got to clearly state what we believe in. After centuries of that developing, obviously, that's what it comes to be. And it's structured, in that case, around God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So in Ignatius, we're seeing the beginnings of what ends up being that. And a lot of what Ignatius has here ends up in the creeds. At least, the gist of it ends up in the creeds later on. Let's take a look at an example. Terrellin chapter 9 is an example. Be deaf, therefore, whenever anyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ who was of the family of David, who was the son of Mary, who really was born, who both ate and drank, who really was persecuted under Pontius Pilate, who really was crucified and died while those in heaven and on earth, under the earth looked on, who moreover really was raised from the dead when, the, when his father raised him up, etc. Some of those elements are there in the final creed that we just had uh, recited to us there from the 4th century. Uh, the emphasis on the details of being arrested under Pontius Pilate, and uh, etc. that are there. But, we're seeing the beginnings of it. And this is part of Ignatius' strategy. He's defining belief. He's saying, what is, what is it that we believe? Let's not be vague about it. It's not to say, we believe in Jesus. Because these other opponents say, we believe in Jesus. These other opponents also say, we believe in God. The Docetics ones do that. Even the other opponents who are Jewish believe in God, believe in Jesus. So what's going on here is a process of Ignatius trying to define what he considers true belief in a way that counters things he considers untrue belief this strategy of defining belief ends up developing into creeds you know it's a long and complicated process but the emphasis in ignatius's case is on jesus christ mainly because the issue of his opponents are denying the fleshliness of jesus and so the holy spirit and the father don't really come into the proto creeds here very much so that's the second main strategy he uses. The third strategy is related to the first strategy, and that is an emphasis on unity and common meetings, and an emphasis on the centrality of the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving meal, and the celebration and remembrance of Jesus' death as central to those meetings. And so you can look at these other passages in his letter to the Ephesians, the Magnesians, and the Philippians and Smyrnians, where you have him emphasizing the need to meet together under the guidance of the bishop, and to only have meetings under the guidance of the bishop. His strategy is emphasizing unity, but these are the concrete ways in which he tries to deal with what he considers the potential for division and the potential for other followers of Jesus to start joining these other groups who think that Jesus was never truly human, or joining the other groups who are Gentiles who are practicing Judaism in a more full way in following Jesus. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Cave, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license.